The following message is brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. To learn more about the Ezra Institute's mission to advance the Lordship of Christ, please visit www.ezrainstitute.ca. One of the questions that uh, does come up, has already come up so far this weekend, is uh, salt and light, what are you doing? And uh, I just wanted to mention to you, just, uh, and I'm happy to, uh, tonight there's a Q&A, uh, at which I'm happy to expand on these. Some of the information is over there. What are we doing as a church? What is, we doing as a, what is Westminster doing, where, where I'm the pastor? Um, how are we seeking to be salt and light? Well, Randy's told you one area there, the EICC. We're trying to equip, train, resource, and come alongside uh, our brothers and sisters in Christ, and especially leaders, to equip them and help them. Often what pastors say to me is, I recognize the problem. Help me with providing the solutions. Help me with how to engage on these things. And so actually the subject of this uh, session now is actually dealt with in two of the journals that uh, are available over there, Law and Gospel. Um, So I'd encourage you to pick that up. That's one of the things we're doing. If you're a leader in leadership, you're an elder, uh, uh, pastor, um, ministry leader, uh, home group leader, whatever, uh, we are hosting, the EICC is hosting a leadership roundtable on March 13th. Again, this is free to you, and it's at the Mississauga Country Club. Okay, this is, this is, this is high-end, right? And it's free. Okay, uh, so if you're a leader and uh, w- w- you're welcome to come to this, we're dealing with the, the, the meaning of the Great Commission, the teaching mandate of the church and of God's people. So there's, uh, that's an, uh, an illustration of what we're doing. This May, the Ezra Institute is partnering with, is cooperating with, I should say, the Christian Legal Fellowship uh, in an event called the Legal Institute. This is an annual event in which uh, the EACC and the CLF are gathering about 50 of the best and the brightest students from all over Canada, and they come together for an intensive week of teaching, training, worldview equipping. They can be in, students can be in any number of different uh, disciplines. It's not just for the legal profession. They might be in, uh, here they've listed uh, medicine, politics, theology, education, media, arts, business. If you've got a son or a daughter, Uh, or uh, uh, young people in your church or university students who are bright, who are keen in understanding how their faith can, through their uh, hopeful vocation, uh, be uh, applied to law or medicine or whatever else the the area they're going into. There are scholarships available for this, full scholarships. Uh, So it's free, again, to the student. So um, pick one of those up if you think there are uh, young people that you know. One of the other things we're doing as a church is I talked to you about the failure of the CAS and what it's doing. We have a, uh, an organization called Save Families for Children in which we are involved in rescuing and helping uh, vulnerable children, neglected children, children at risk of abuse, and placing them with Christian families uh, and helping the parents get back on their feet. Churches are taking this on all over Ontario and in different parts of Canada. Uh, and this is a ministry we launched in the last couple of years that we've been working on for some time now. So if you're interested in Save Families, this is, this is what being salt and light really means. This is where the, the rubber hits the road for us as churches. And I don't have any flyers about it, but lastly, we're actually next year, 2014, we're in the middle of renovations now. We are launching the Westminster Christian Academy, a classical Christian school for children in the city. Uh, and that is uh, coming online next year, and we're in the middle of preparing ground for that now. So those are just some of the areas in which salt and light uh, is being worked out in uh, the life of our church and ministry. So I want you to know that I'm just not hot air up here telling you what to do. We are actually trying. 
by the grace of God, seeking to apply his word in our own context. Now, in this uh, next session now, this afternoon, uh, let's go back to Matthew chapter 5. And I want now to consider uh, the paradigmatic statement, the hinge of the entire Sermon on the Mount uh, with you uh, this, afternoon, uh, this morning. Uh, take us through till lunchtime. Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 20. Notice that it comes after a description of uh, what the Christian life looks like, what we are in Christ, what we shall be by grace, uh, through a description then of the inevitable outcome of such a life to be salt and light in the world. Jesus says, Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy but to fulfill. For assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, not one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you, that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus uh, makes known as he's gone up onto the mountain as the greater Moses that he is not the antithesis of the law. He is not the opposite of the law. He's come to fulfill and to apply his, apply his law. The term fulfill there is the Greek word pleru, and it has a number of implications. There's a lot of ink been spilt on all the technicalities of its implications, but it denotes very clearly Christ is the object or end of the law. That is, he is the thing that the law is pointing to. He is the manifestation or fullness of all of its requirements. That is, he obeys it perfectly. And that as the Lord and giver of the law, he has come to implement or reinforce his law. That means he has come to put it into force. And you will find in your Greek lexicons all of those implications of the term uh, playroom. Now the uh, essence of what um, I'm saying about God's mountain men is that we have really neglected a large portion, portion of God's word and that's made us impotent in society. It's made us implicant, impotent in the application of the gospel. It's a controversial area today to navigate because of the uh, extremes that people slip into of both legalism and license. And so this subject, this issue that Jesus addresses here, takes us deep into the territory of the relationship between law and gospel. Both the antinomian, that is the one who is anti-law, and the legalist, the Pharisee, is in fact coming to God in self-righteousness, not in the righteousness of God in Jesus Christ. So Paul tells us that there is a righteousness apart from the law that has been revealed in the law and the prophets. Just turn there with me to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3 is an introductory remark. In verse 21 of Romans chapter 3, he's talking about how our righteousness in terms of our standing before God uh, is in and through Jesus Christ, and it's always been that way. Our righteous standing before God has never been by, in, even in the time of the law and the prophets, in the time of Moses, it was never by legal obedience. 
This is what he says. But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. And then he goes on to say that the, this gospel, this righteousness of the gospel, does not nullify the law. Look at verse 31. Do we then make void the law through faith? Certainly not. We, on the contrary, we establish the law or we uphold the law. So Paul essentially reinforces here what Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 5. In this kingdom manifesto, in his charter for the people of God, his law, Jesus makes it front and center. In fact, he says, if you want to be great in the kingdom of God, you need to be obedient. In the, in, in the kingdom of heaven, you need to be obedient to God's word, to God's law. Now, some of you will already be thinking, where is Joe going with this? This is perhaps news to you. Well, from the late first century after the apostles, the church began to drink very deeply. As Gentiles became converted to the gospel, the church began to drink very deeply from pagan philosophy. He had all of these Greeks and pagans being converted, and many of them were not sure what to do with the Bible. Augustine confesses this in his Confessions. He says he found it too earthy, too visceral, too tangible, not spiritual enough. It was too much about the things of the earth and the things of the world, and didn't seem to be about ideas. Augustine was a converted Neoplatonic philosopher. And for these men who came out of a pagan worldview, and Randy talked about secularism, secularism is an expression of paganism, today's secularism is expressing itself increasingly as paganism. This is pagan sexual ethics you're looking at here. It's, I'm going to talk about oneism and monism in just a moment to explain that to you. But a serious problem began to develop in the life of the church in terms of how to apply God's word. There was the risk then, as Gentiles were being converted, of a break with the past, of a break with the Hebrew Scriptures. Now, of course, Paul is concerned in Galatians in particular with the idea that Gentiles who come to faith, some were saying, well, you've got to be circumcised. The law requires it, so you've got to be circumcised to be part of the people of God. This is dealt with uh, by the New Testament, but what we find is that the Gospels and the letters sit directly upon the faith and revelation of the law and the prophets. And if that foundation collapses upon which it is built, what starts to happen is that the Gospel itself begins to collapse. The meaning of the Gospel begins to collapse. And we today are dealing with, in large parts of the church, a flippant dismissal, even a mocking of God's law and of the Old Testament. In fact, the emergent church uh, writers have been uh, blatant about this. And as a result, the gospel itself starts to collapse. One pastor in America. Uh, Brian Abshire has written, the apostate, bland, ineffectual, culturally compromised church of today has only to look at, it, look at its rejection of the Old Testament to discover the source of its many errors. 
From the time of uh, Methodism in the modern world to the emergence of various holiness movements as the Reformation began to recede, what tended to happen is that the Christian culture with which men were surrounded, when uh, John Wesley and George uh, and, uh, uh, and uh, uh, Jonathan Edwards, George Whitfield were about their ministry, and they began to see this social transformation. And in fact, in the whole post-Reformation era, what gradually began to happen steadily after the Great Awakening was that there became increasingly an inward focus only for the Christian faith. Because men were surrounded by the Christian gospel. Christian law was established in their nations. Christian education was all around them. The great universities founded by the Puritans in America, founded by Christians here, were Christian so there was this ability to, to rest confident in the fact, well, of course, men realize the centrality of God's law. So we now need to focus ourselves on being godly men, righteous men, pious men. Holy, as Randy said, this is very important. But steadily, the emphasis became on simply soteriology. That is the doctrine of salvation and sharing the gospel and people going to heaven. Interestingly enough, when Jesus taught us to pray, he didn't actually teach us to pray about going to heaven. He says, when you pray, when you pray, it wasn't Jesus' prayer, it's the prayer he taught us to pray. He says, when you pray, this is how you should pray, our Father in heaven, holy is your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's how he taught us to pray. So the message of redemption progressively ceased to be one that declared Christ's total lordship, his kingdom, his rule over the whole cosmos as a universal king, reconciling all things to himself, which is the message of the New Testament. If you're taking notes, 2 Corinthians 5.19, Colossians 1.20, look at Ephesians 1 as well, look at Psalm 2. But it was one that became truncated to really be a kind of individualistic brand of glorified fire insurance. Right? You uh, watch out, the fire, the, the, the judgment is coming, insure yourself, receive Christ, and you'll go to heaven. And the the the, the message of the gospel started to be truncated into a message about personal peace and satisfaction now. And of course we have the psychological gospel that proliferates in the church today. The Joel Olstein version of the gospel and various uh, uh, offshoots of that. And or a message that is simply about getting saved and going to heaven. And this meant the men in particular are asking themselves, well, what's the purpose of my life then? I mean, what's the purpose of my business, my work? What's the purpose of building a business, of building a company, of leading my family? I mean, if it's all going to hell in a handbasket and it's just about fire insurance, what's the point? And our faith became more and more spiritualized, limited to a spiritual realm of evangelical monasticism, as one cultural commentator has called it. So what happens? The church empties of men in the 20th century. In the 1960s, 50s and 60s, the church began to empty of men, the women hung around, and then the church began to empty of the women as well. 
And even now in evangelicalism, when women are populating the church and becoming uh, and stepping up to the plate more and more in areas of leadership, it's the men who are largely absent because we have a largely feminized church, because we have a feminized gospel. It's about sharing your feelings. And that becomes the emphasis. It's not that sharing feelings is wrong. We love our women, okay? We love our wives. But the gospel of the kingdom is not simply about introspection and sharing our feelings. In fact, it isn't actually centrally about that at all. Nowhere do you have see Paul hosting a love-in and having a share your, bear your soul, share your feelings time in the, in, in the, new, in the epistles. It's about the work of the gospel of the kingdom of God. We need our wives in that. We need femininity as part of the life of the church, the nurturing of our children, of our families. But the church is empty of men today because they see often no purpose in it. This is because of Gnosticism. There is a theological reason for this. Gnosticism and Neoplatonism was held uh, to by many of the Greeks, and it's been around in the church ever since, that the real issue of salvation is the spiritual life with the purpose of perfecting one's own spiritual status. It wasn't the biblical view that held to the redemption of the whole man and of the whole world. I said in the last session that our inheritance, according to Paul in Romans 4.13, is the inheritance of the whole cosmos. Jesus says that we're inheriting everything. The earth belongs to us. And this is what he declares to us in the Great Commission in Matthew 28. He says, all authority in heaven and earth is mine. So which part of heaven and earth does he not have authority in? Therefore, because the authority is mine, he says, you can go and you can discipline the nations. That's what the Greek word teach means. Discipline the nations, teach them everything I've commanded you, and I'm with you to the very end of the world, to the very end of the age. That's your mandate, that's your purpose, because the, everything belongs to the Lord. Christ is the heir of all things. Just read the opening chapter of Hebrews. He is inheriting all things. The land grant given to the people of God, the new humanity in Jesus Christ, is everything. He has already got the victory, and our task now is to go and mop up. It's a mopping up campaign. It's to bring all things, Paul tells us in uh, 2 Corinthians 10, into captivity to Jesus Christ. That's the mandate. That's why the Bible is full of very masculine imagery about soldiers. That's why Paul takes armor as an illustration of the Christian life. It's why there is a, we used to say in the church, we are the church militant. We don't like that word anymore because the Islamists have co-opted it. The church militant and the church triumphant. The church triumphant in heaven, the church militant in the earth about God's purposes. We spiritualized everything away, and this was the Gnostic strategy, and the Gnostics, their key motif was an unrelenting opposition to the law of God in the Old Testament. Unrelenting. This antinomian spirit through a kind of radical Anabaptism in the medieval era, in the um, Reformation era, bred a form of pietism in Europe, a kind of pietistic evangelicalism. And uh, what happened in the... Uh, in the framing of the fundamentals when liberalism invaded the churches in the end of the 19th century, early 20th century, old liberalism that is, that came out of Germany, uh, 
What the liberals did is they said, well, because we don't actually have a gospel about salvation, about God's transformation of men through Jesus Christ by regeneration, we've got to offer the world something, so we'll just do what the world is doing. We'll just, the church will just say the same thing as the world, and they had something which has been dubbed the social gospel. Are you familiar with that term? The social gospel. And the social gospel was basically Marxism. Christianized Marxism. They said we have to bring justice and do justice. But that justice had nothing to do with God's law. It had to do with socialism. And Fabian socialism and so on. So evangelicals said... Unlike our evangelical forebears who abolished slavery and transformed the prison system and reformed the law and so on, the uh, evangelicals said, oh, we don't want to do that. Don't want to get involved in the social issues because that's the social gospel. The historians call it the great reversal. And we step back from health, welfare, and education. I don't want to go over all of that now. It's not really the central issue of my subject uh, this morning. But what we did in this classic expression of pietizing evangelicalism was to set love over against law and over against justice. Justice and law are seen in this Gnostic idea as legalism and license is called love in a superior way. In a misinterpretation of the Apostle Paul. And there's two roots to this, and I want to just highlight them to you very quickly. The first we'll call monism. Monism. M O N I S M. This was a pagan idea. Monism teaches that the goal of all being, of all reality, is unity in the one, oneness, the removal of differences, of, di- of distinctions. Love is unity, is oneness. You want to know why uh, the, the diversity, equality, equalization campaigns in the schools? This is the idea. It's monism. It's paganism. Differentiation, making moral differences, even making gender distinctions is seen as oppression, injustice. Because all things are to be one. In other words, the problem is a metaphysical problem. It's not a moral problem, man says. It's a metaphysical problem. We need the brotherhood of all men to be united in love. Love not as God defines love, but as man is going to define it, which is oneness. This is the higher way. And so it's not uncommon in our churches today when somebody makes a moral stand or has a commitment, a manly commitment about something, don't judge. That's judgmental. Don't judge. Be loving. Jesus never said not to judge, i.e. eliminate judgment. In fact, what the word of God says, judgment begins at the house of God. That's where it begins. That's its first port of call. What he said was, don't judge by your own measure, your own standards, because the measure you use will be measured to you. Judge righteous judgment. That's what Jesus said. What is righteous judgment? Your own reflections, your own cogitations about the meaning of righteousness? No, righteous judgment, righteousness, which is interchangeable a term with justice, is the word of God, is the law of God. That's what righteousness is. So, 
Love today is spoken of as a panacea, an elastic principle that trumps every kind of moral objection so that all criminality and immorality is increasingly tolerated and celebrated in the name of love. I read an article back in um, January 2011 about a man imprisoned for murdering a police officer in cold blood while he was eating his lunch. He was awarded $10,000 by a human rights tribunal as compensation for being asked to stand during roll call, which gave him a bad back in prison. I'm not making this stuff up. This is, this is what's going on all the time in our culture. According to UN international comparisons, Canada despite our delusions to the contrary, has a rate of police-reported criminal incidents among the highest in the world, almost double that of the United States. That's the UN statistic. Our failure to respect God's law in our culture with respect to marriage with respect to crime, with respect to murder, for example, in the name of love and rehabilitation. And by the way, have you ever thought about the names we give to our prisons? Penitentiaries. What's, what's the origin of that word? Penitence. The penitentiary in the 19th century was modeled on the idea that you create a monk's cloister. A small room where, based on a Lockean understanding of the human personality, and the human person is a blank slate, man is only a sinner because of his, he only does bad things because of his environment. Change his environment, you can wipe that slate, reprogram him, and release him back into society. Because there he will be penitent. Actually, the, and I work with the Christian Legal Fellowship, I assure you that we have produced the opposite in our criminal system. Recidivism, that is re-offense rates, are off the charts. Most people in prison have been there many times before. Our failure to obey God's law has led to, in the name of humaneness, rampant evil. Get this, in the 33-year period from 1975 to 2008, some 508 violent criminals were released from Canada's prisons after social and psychological rehabilitation and being deemed no longer a danger to society. Those 508 violent felons proceeded to murder 557 Canadians after their release into society. And we've got uh, people like Trudeau to thank for that, whose great speech in 1976 led to basically the abolition of capital punishment in Canada. I could digress for a good deal of time onto that subject, now I won't. <laughs> the, so the first root of the modern problem is monism. Monism. Everything needs to be one. There needs to be an elimination of the distinctions between truth and falsehood, right and wrong. Criminals are not criminals. The father of modern sociology, Emil Durkheim, said in his Rules of Sociological Method that the criminal is a pioneer to the morality of the future. The second root of our problem today is dualism. In most cases, this dualism is in the process of being reconciled into a monistic reality. This tradition goes back to Zoroastrianism. It's there also in Gnosticism, in Manichaeanism, and it basically posits two gods, two powers, good and evil. Love and light are with the good God. 
Justice and law, in fact, in, in, uh, in Gnosticism, uh, creation itself is a product of the evil God. The material world is a product of the evil God. So sex is evil and all of these things, these distortions. Justice, law, and matter, the world, are lower and inferior, while unity, spirit, love are the higher way. These are Eastern forms of philosophy, profoundly anti-Christian, profoundly anti-biblical. Because in scripture, evil is not the product of us being material beings. You're not evil because you've got a gender, because you've got sexual instinct. You're not evil because you're made of matter. Do you know that you are going to be a physical, corporeal being for all eternity as a Christian? You're not going to have a number floating around in some ethereal existence. Jesus Christ was physically, bodily raised from the dead. That's the meaning of the resurrection. Otherwise, Jesus just could have been raised spiritually. There would be no need for a body to come out of the grave. And what does he do? To prove it, he goes down to the, uh, to the lake and he eats fish with the disciples. You've got to have a body to be able to eat fish. He said to Thomas, touch my hands, touch my feet, I'm real, I'm not a ghost. There's nothing evil about the material creation. The problem is not metaphysical. We live in a fallen world, it's been corrupted. You know, pineapples today are not true pineapples in the fullest sense of the term. Right? They're not unfallen pineapples. Right? And you've got, uh, if you look at the level of your ears you've got genetic mutations that have built up in our genome and so we're fallen physical beings right that we're not exactly level not everything's quite right but it's not evil the problem is moral but they said the key to salvation is escaping the body escaping the material world getting out of the material world the ascent of the soul the making the inward turn and this is, of course, the nature of the popular spiritualities today. Buddhism and so on is about meditation, centering, recognizing your oneness with being, realizing that the good, evil distinctions are on the lower level of existence. You need to transcend them into the oneness and realization of what true reality is. And life, do you know what salvation is in paganism? Death. Death is salvation. To have no desires to have no distinctions, to, to annihilate even the self. There is no self, finally, in Buddhism. You're wondering the relevance of all of this, perhaps. Well, being material is not the problem. Christ's redemption is for the totality of the person, body, and soul. But when we see justice and law as divisive, we then view salvation not as a moral work of justice and righteousness and the substitutionary atonement of Christ, but as a spiritual work of love by man being made to, excuse me, to love one another by coercion in a new equality and fraternity of brotherhood. Have you noticed how this new love you're coercively forced to embrace this new standard of love. It's not by, there's no inward transformation. You're told this is what love looks like, do it or else. Jesus said, on the other hand, do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, 
and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, Matthew 10, 34 through 35. In other words, the gospel by definition, the righteousness of God, which is revealed in the gospel, divides. It makes distinctions. It separates good and evil. It separates truth from falsehood. Because the only true unity is in the truth. That's why the Apostle Paul says in the most famous passage on love, that everybody wants read at their wedding, 1 Corinthians 13, love does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. The license in the name of love that's prevalent in the church today is a product of seeing the spiritual and immaterial as superior So that to some degree, what's done in the body, which is seen increasingly as a kind of prison until we get to heaven, is not so important as how our emotions, how we feel about things, feeling loving in the realm of ideas, the realm of our intentions. And God's law is seen as harsh and despised as unloving. And if we make... uh, Biblical, take a biblical stance on things we're accused of being intolerant, judgmental, unloving, and so forth. And so, and, and so you have a completely feminized context in the life of the church. Not that women can't stand for the truth and justice, they can. But men in particular tend to be made constitutionally to stand for things, to make clear demarcations, to lead And many of us are expecting our women to lead in the moral department and instruct our children and direct the church. God's law in this context then is despised. But Jesus says, if we want to be called great in the kingdom of God, we have to love and teach his law because not a single punctuation mark, he says, is going to disappear till everything is fulfilled, till heaven and earth pass away. He says, don't think even a punctuation mark in the law is going to be done away with. To separate love and justice or put at variance law and love is impossible in Christianity because they are two sides of the same coin. Paul says in Romans 13 verse 10, love, this is the greatest statement in the Bible on it, I think, love is the fulfillment of the law. Romans 13, 10. Love is the fulfillment of the law. If we expect our wives to believe we love them whilst we commit multiple acts of adultery, is our confession of loving them anything but hollow words? Because love is the fulfillment of the law. When they came to Jesus and said, good teacher, what must we do to inherit eternal life? He didn't say, well, come sit down here. Let me just go through with you the four spiritual laws and say the sinner's prayer. A, B, C, accept, believe, commit. What did he say? He said, what does the law say? And they usually rattled off part of the commandments. They say, do this and you'll live. Hang on, where's the message of you must be born again? Well, Jesus only said that once. That was to Nicodemus. Now, we must be born again, as John Wesley said when he was asked, why do you always preach you must be born again? He said, because you must be born again. That's true. Right? We must be born again. But Jesus always directed people to the righteous standards of God's law in order that they would recognize that they needed a savior, that they needed to be remade, that they needed regeneration, that there was no righteousness in and of themselves that could avail them. 
Christ's gospel, the cross of Christ, is a supreme coincidence of love and justice because it manifests the absolute requirement of God's justice against man's sin whilst at the same time declaring the love of God for sinners. God so loved that he gave. And the cross of Jesus Christ is based on the fundamental law of God. The basis of God's law throughout God's word is the principle of restitution. Restitution. The principle of restitution is embodied in the lex talionis, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. God says exact justice. Exact justice. When Jesus was in Zacchaeus' house, you remember? It's not just a Sunday school song for the kids. Zacchaeus was a little man and he climbed his tree. You know, I know we sing those songs, that's great. There was something more to it than that. He went into the house of Zacchaeus and Zacchaeus is convicted of his lawlessness. What does Zacchaeus do? He says, I'm a thief, in, in my version of it. I'm a thief. I've stolen from people. I am going to restore four times as much to those I've stolen from. Do you know what that principle was? The principle of the law is the principle of restitution. He was only by law actually required to restore twofold of the money stolen. But I believe, if memory serves, I could be wrong. You can check, check me up on that. But he, it, it, I think it was four times. Four times as much. He went over and above. Jesus says, today salvation has come to this house. Why? Because he put the word of God into practice. He didn't just say, thanks for your forgiveness, Lord, I'm off now. Appreciate that. The purpose of restitution, the purpose of the cross is to restore godliness from holiness to holiness, from righteousness to righteousness. It's that the work of the law might be manifest in us. What does Paul say to Titus? I think it's Titus 3.10. Let's turn there. Purpose of the gospel. Actually, it's not Titus 3.10, but it is Titus. Hang on. Randy, can you help me out here? 2.11? Yes, thank you. Thank you very much. Chapter 2. Let's just read from verse 11. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of, the, of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. Our redemption is from lawlessness that we might now be men who keep the law of God. By the grace of God. That's the purpose. You weren't redeemed from lawlessness so that you could be a lawless man. We weren't liberated from the curse of the law so that we could put ourselves back under condemnation. So to speak of a conflict between law and justice and love is utterly absurd. Some Christians have practically said today that there are two different gods really represented. I've heard ministers say that if you can't imagine Jesus doing it, what you see in the Old Testament, God never said it. They've not read Jesus carefully, clearly. Red letter Christianity, another new movement springing up in the life of the church. 
That's the words of Jesus that are important. Well, actually, if we take the words of Jesus seriously, is not all of Scripture important then? He's just told us that not a single jot of the law, not a punctuation mark is going to disappear. Part of the ambivalence to this issue has come about, and I don't want to tread on anybody's toes here, but if I do, just say ow. Uh, some of the ambivalence to the law is the fault of seminaries and pastors in, in the church today because they were trained in a view of the Scripture that said through J.N. Darby and later Schofield that there are seven dispensations in Scripture and only one of those dispensations is for today. And that the real goal of the church as a parenthesis in God's plan is to escape the world through a secret rapture. That's our, we're to just get out of here. And that's the purpose. We are just a parenthetical subplot. And that the sooner we're gone... Actually, the more helpful it will be, because then the Jews will do the evangelism. Now, I don't want to uh, over-characterize it, but that's classic. that was classic dispensationalism. Seven dispensations, most, uh, including Lewis Sperry Chafer, the founder of Dallas Theological Seminary, de- he denied that the Sermon on the Mount was for Christians. What I'm saying to you today would be totally irrelevant in this system of thought. Now, uh, there are very few uh, seminaries in in, uh, in North America now that teach this. In fact, uh, in fact, I don't think one of them. I think even progressive dispensationalism now dominates Dallas. But in the popular consciousness of the Christian Church, this idea is still there. Edwin Irving popularized the idea in his uh, British journal, The Morning Watch as they fleshed out the vision of Margaret MacDonald, who a Scottish prophetess, 21 years of age, who believed that the Christians would get out of the world before the world deteriorated too much. And it was taught that the entirety of the Old Testament and large parts of the New, including Christ's teaching on justice, mercy, stewardship, were really just written for the Jews. Lewis Ferry Chafer, as I said, held that only the books of John, Acts, and Paul's epistles were specifically addressed to Christians. And so God's Ten Commandments are actually God's Ten Suggestions. Chafer wrote, and I'm quoting him now, he says, these actual written commandments, either of Moses or the kingdom, are not the rule of the believer's life under grace any more than these systems are the basis for his salvation. So you had, in moving into the church, an antinomian temper that said, the law of God is just non-applicable. This is when we're not under law, we're under grace. And that statement is misunderstood. It's true that we're not under the condemnation of the law through Jesus Christ. There is no condemnation. That's the purpose of the blood of Christ, to free us from the condemnation of the law. But am I now not under the requirement to love God with heart, mind, soul, and strength, to reject idolatry, not to blaspheme the name of God, to remember a day of rest, to honor my parents, not to murder, commit adultery, steal, bear false testimony, or covet? Never in the history of the church had such a doctrine ever been proclaimed. Well, this varying degrees of this thought have led to an obsession equally with contemporary relevance because if, if it's not God's law that we're to teach, well, what, what do we teach? Well, we need some techniques. We need some ideas to replace that. What can we have? Well, maybe a psychological gospel. Maybe a name it and claim it gospel. Maybe just a pragmatic gospel. Maybe the law of Christ is different from the law of God, I hear people say today. Well, it's the law of Christ, brother. 
Also, Christ is divided against himself in the Godhead. His, what God said from the mountain is now contradicted by Christ. Where is the evidence for this in the Bible? Brothers, I want to suggest to you that what we've done largely is we want to justify ourselves and our sin and we don't want to stand with the word of God. Because you know what? We actually agree with people that we think it's too hard, too harsh. What, you, you mean to say that God really expects us to tithe? I mean, hang on a minute. Surely just, we just have to be generous. Well, Jesus said... You bring your cumin and your spices and so forth, and, uh, uh, but you reject the matey, weighty matters of law. He says, you bring your tithes and so forth, but you reject the weighty matters of law. He says, these you should have done, but not left the other undone. It's not either or. Tough stuff, I know. Love as license then has been perceived by many as the higher way. And today I don't think there's much doubt that antinomianism has plagued the church. I'll prove this to you. How many of you guys, and I'm not asking you to put your hands up, I'm not going to embarrass any of us, how many of us can actually name the Ten Commandments in order? How many of our children could do it? How many of our youth could do it? Do you know that until the Second World War, most churches displayed the Ten Commandments publicly in their buildings? Most of us recited the Ten Commandments weekly in the liturgies of our churches. Today we just, you know, recite Rick, uh, Rick's purpose-driven whatever. We can recite those. We don't know the law of God. Never mind God's applications of his Ten Commandments in case law. The meaning of the Ten Commandments is they're unpacked in the rest of the Bible that Jesus quoted throughout his ministry. Did you know in Mark 7 and Matthew 15, for example, Jesus upholds God's commandments with respect to the cursing and abuse of parents? You read it for yourselves, brothers. Mark chapter 7, Matthew 15. And he says this. You teach as doctrines the commandments of men. And you make void the law of God. That's what we do today. In large measure. We teach as doctrine the commandments of men. And as such make void the law of God. The early church took seriously the Psalm 19. The law of the Lord is perfect. Did you read the Psalms, guys? Psalm 1, Psalm 19, Psalm 119. Jesus loved the Psalms. He was always quoting the Psalms. It's the word of God. It's written by the Holy Spirit, according to Hebrews 3. The Psalms are written by the Holy Spirit. Read Psalm 119, longest Psalm in the Bible. It's all about the law of God. Loving it. Rejoicing on it. David says, how I love your law, and on your law I meditate day and night. And we wonder why the culture is the way it is. 
I'm not condemning you, I'm encouraging you. This is encouragement. This is exhortation and blessing. It is. This is blessing. Right? Good. Right? This is what it actually means to be the blessed of God. Jesus says, satisfied as God is satisfied, blessed are those who love righteousness and justice. Then we'll be blessed. Not be- I, I've not always understood this in my Christian life. When, when, when I came to understand is it transformed my life as a Christian. Totally. It's like being given a whole new Bible. Being given a new faith to live by to walk by, to be a husband by, to be a, a, to be a pastor, a father. The early church recognized all of this and they took Paul seriously. Do we make void the law through faith? Absolutely not. We uphold, we establish the law. If you want to be great in God's kingdom, love the law of God, teach the law of God because Jesus loved it. He rejoiced in it and he taught it. And he said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets summarized these two commandments. That's what it means. And this is how the Christian is called to live. Think about how Jesus described his own ministry and how the gospels describe it. It's rooted right back there in Matthew in the, Abraham, Mark begins with Isaiah, Luke begins with uh, uh, the uh, birth of Jesus and then traces his lineage all the way back to Adam. John begins in Genesis itself. And Jesus, when he wants to describe the meaning of his own ministry in Luke chapter 24, verses 25 following, what does he say? The road to Emmaus, the greatest Bible study ever hosted. What did he say? Beginning at Moses... And all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. That's where he started. When the Pharisees reject reject Jesus' teaching in John 5, what does Jesus say? Don't be so mean, why are you being so intolerant? No, he said this. Do not think that I shall accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, in whom you trust. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? If we can't accept Moses, how can we accept Christ? Thus, Jesus is not something altogether new in that sense. He rests on his own self-revelation throughout history. The early church did not say, well, now we can blaspheme, now we can commit adultery, now we can murder, steal, take no rest, covet the possessions of others, worship idols, because Jesus has forgiven us our sins. They said the opposite. They said, now we are free men, as James the Apostle says, to live in terms of the law of liberty, because that is true freedom. He whom the Son sets free is free indeed. Be reminded that there was no New Testament when the early church was preaching the gospel throughout the first century. There were letters in circulation, there were some gospels in circulation, but they were preaching from God's word in all of scripture. When Paul wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3, I was given an extra few minutes, guys, that's why we're just, lunch is coming, don't worry. Feeding the body is important, but man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word 
that proceeds from the mouth of God, right? So let's just, just a couple more minutes, and I'm done. Paul says to Timothy, concerning the inspiration and authority of Scripture, 2 Timothy 3, 14 through 17, he says that the Scriptures are able to make you wise for salvation, which is through faith in Christ Jesus, and he wasn't referring to the New Testament because it didn't even exist. All Scripture is God-breathed. Not left for some other dispensation, not set aside, not brushed aside. It's all God-breathed. And so it's impossible to conceive that adherence to the law of God was seen as legalism. On the contrary, it was seen as the way of liberty. And if you look at the New Covenant, we haven't got time to turn there, but if you, during this weekend, brothers, go to Hebrews chapter 8 and verses 8 through 13, and you will read there a citation from Jeremiah 31. And it is a declaration of the meaning of the new covenant. And it's that God will now write his laws on our hearts as, his, his de- as our desire and as our delight. That's the meaning of the new covenant. The means of the new covenant is the death of Christ and his resurrection. But the nature of the new covenant is that his righteous law is now written on our hearts. The gospel doesn't end with the cross and with the resurrection. The new covenant itself, ratified by the blood of Christ, renewed by the blood of Christ, is that we will be righteous, a righteous people who submit ourselves to his every word, that his law will now be inscribed not on tablets of stone, but on the very tablets of our hearts. That's the gospel. The law is given then. It was given to Israel as an act of grace. And it is given now to us as not the source of life, but the way of life. We're told, this is the way, walk ye in it. Not only so, we're given it because God will have his work established in the earth. I'm going to read the final scripture to you. 1 Timothy chapter 1, and I want to read verses 5 through 11, where, where Paul touches upon the public use of the law, that it's not just even for the cultivation of holiness in our own lives or in our own families, but it's actually for the reconciliation of all things to Christ, the reconciling of all things to himself. This is what Paul says, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 5 through 11. Now the purpose of the commandment is love, notice, from a pure heart, from a good conscience, and from sincere faith, from which some have strayed, having turned aside to idle talk, desiring to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say nor the things that they affirm. But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous person. After all, the righteous man walks in the ways of the law. But for the lawless and insubordinate, for the ungodly and for sinners, for the unholy and profane, for murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers, for manslayers, for fornicators, for sodomites, for kidnappers, for liars, for perjurers, and if there is any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine, according to the what? Glorious gospel of the blessed God which was committed to my trust. Paul says this is the gospel. This is part of the nature of the message of the gospel. The rule and reign of the gospel of the kingdom is that the law has several functions and this is how historically evangelicalism understood it. It's a schoolmaster, that is it's a, it's a mirror, it's a teacher as it were, that leads us to the necessity of Christ. It's a mirror by which we see our own unrighteousness. And it is for 
the civil use of the magistrate to restrain wickedness. We read at the beginning, uh, Deuteronomy chapter 4, where Moses says, if we'll be obedient to this, if we'll walk in God's commandments, all the the nations around us will recognize the wisdom and understanding that God has given to us, and they will say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. If we want to be seen as wise and understanding men, we need to be obedient to the word, to the law of God. Whoever practices and teaches these commandments, Jesus says, will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. You can't be justified by the law. You can't be made righteous by the law. You can only be justified through the Lord Jesus Christ and his grace. But when we have been justified by grace, we are remade, we are regenerated into new men and women who have been transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit, and we do not want to be vain worshippers. Jesus says, in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrine the commandments of men. Law and grace are not opposites. They're not antithetical to one another. The grace of God enables us to walk in the righteousness and justice of God and to love and rejoice in his law so that we can really be his mountain men and make a difference in our society. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. Please feel free to share it with friends, but do not charge for or alter the material in any way without the express written consent of the EICC. Thank you.